Uh, good evening. It's a great uh, privilege uh, to be here with you tonight as part of the summer preaching series where the preachers are uh, preaching on verses that have or passages that have helped them the most. Uh, let us pray before we get started. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for uh, this time that we have to hear your word, to hear from you tonight, Lord. Help us, Lord, to understand these things and to make application into our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, this is one of the first passages uh, that I was assigned to study by my youth leader when I first started to attend a small group Bible study when I was around uh, middle school age. And meditating on this passage definitely helped me to avoid perhaps bad company and peer pressure situations, especially during my years in school. But I missed the main point back then. I missed the point of the whole book of Proverbs. I missed what true wisdom is. As I would read this passage and other passages in the book of Proverbs, I realized now that I was leaning more towards moralism and legalism which I think is very common when we read through the law and wisdom literature. We even begin to judge others based on these standards. Now moralism is the idea that we can please God by our good behavior, and legalism is the idea that we can please God by keeping the law. And in the extreme views of these two ideas, one thinks that one can be righteous in the eyes of God by being a good moral person or by thinking that one can actually keep God's law. When I was asked to bring a passage that has helped me in my life, it gave me a great opportunity to see Christ clear in this passage, as he is wisdom personified. 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24 says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And Colossians 2, 1 through 3 says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Many times when someone asks us how they can pray for us, one of the first things that we say is for wisdom, which is good because we need the Lord to give us wisdom for everyday lives and so we can continue to mature in our walk with Christ. But do we want biblical wisdom or do we hope only for more head knowledge? Do we want godly wisdom so as to walk in holiness or so people think we are noble or humble for making such a petition. We need to analyze 
whether we seek wisdom so as to live according to God's will or for our own selfish ambition and pride. James 3, 13 through 17, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be a disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. As we read and go through this passage of Proverbs, we need to think of Christ as the wisdom of God. We need to remember that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What we have in Proverbs are principles, poems, and short sayings that express general truth for practical godly living. What we don't have are promises or laws. Many times in Proverbs, many times the Proverbs are seen as a promise and people will blame themselves or even complain to God if things don't turn out the way it says in a proverb. Let's look at Proverbs 22.6 as an example. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, it is God-honoring, and fathers are called to raise their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But this proverb is not a promise. This is a principle, a general observation, a cause and effect, if you will. Generally speaking, when you do raise a child in biblical instruction, they will grow up to be God-fearing adults. But when parents do raise up their children in the church and the child eventually turns out to be an unbeliever, parents that view this as a promise will blame themselves or ask what they did wrong. And on the other hand, many times they will also give themselves credit if their child grows up to be a believer, similar to when a legalistic person attributes their obedience to themselves and not to God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Just as there is a relationship between the law and the gospel, there is a relationship between the books of wisdom and the gospel. Just as the law condemns us and shows us how sinful we are, the books of wisdom show us how unwise and foolish we are. Just as the law shows us how we should live in light of being saved, so do the books of wisdom show us general principles we should follow in light of being saved. And just as we need the Holy Spirit to help us walk in wisdom, just as we need the Holy Spirit to help us walk in holiness, we need it, the Holy Spirit to help us walk in wisdom. I have titled this message, Avoiding the Wrong Path. In a way, the paths of life can be simple because there are only two paths in life the narrow path and the broad path, the path of the righteous 
and the path of the wicked, the path of the wise and the path of the foolish, the path of the true living God and the path of false idols, the path of life and the path of death. And in order to navigate life, we need knowledge, wisdom, and instruction. Now we've already heard that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and that Christ is the wisdom of God. But God has also provided us his word for our instruction. Romans 15:4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Our hope is in Christ. If the scriptures did not point us to, point us to Christ, we would have no hope for salvation. The story of the Bible is about our redemption in Christ. As we seek wisdom in the book of Proverbs, we need to seek Christ because he is the embodiment of wisdom. He is the consummation of wisdom. He is the wise son of Solomon. As we go into our passage, I have divided it into three points, which are the call to attentiveness, which we will see in verses 8 and 9, the enticement, which we will see in verses 10 through 14, and the, and the warning, which we will see in verses 15 through 19. The first point in tonight's study is the call to attentiveness, which we will see in verses 8 and 9, and I'll read them again. It says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. In the first portion of this proverb or poem, the writer, which is usually attributed as being Solomon, is speaking to a son, and it begins with a call to attentiveness. He says, hear, my son, and forsake not your mother's teaching. There is both a call to listen and a call to not abandon. Generally speaking, parents will instruct us and teach us for our benefit. Even if they are unbelievers, they may give sound financial, career, and relationship advice. But if they are believers, our parents will do the best to bring us up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and they will point us to Christ and to the scriptures. The main motivation for honoring our parents, as long as it's not sin, is to honor God and usually God-fearing parents will bring us up in a way that is for our good and for God's glory. And in verse 9, the instruction and teaching of parents are called a graceful garland for the head and pendants for the neck. A garland is a wreath or an arrangement of flowers that is worn on the head like a crown and it symbolizes victory. And a pendant is an ornament on a necklace and it was a symbol of, of luxury. Godly men in the Bible who persevered in obedience and in the instruction of the Lord through difficult trials and tribulations received different types of symbols of victory and honor. 
even though perhaps they were not given to them directly for obeying the Lord. For example, in Genesis 41-42, it reads, Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And about Daniel, in Daniel 5.29, it reads, Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Wisdom from godly parents are like these earthly treasures to us that symbolize great worth and value. Now, I understand that not everyone in this room may have or may have had God-fearing parents. But if you are a believer, you have a heavenly father that cares for you, and you can receive instruction from his word. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.25 that athletes run and exercise self-control for a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. Towards the end of his life on earth, in his final letter to Timothy, he alludes again to the imperishable wreath, the crown of righteousness laid up for him, which the Lord will award to him, and not only to him, but all who love his appearing. The crowns that we may receive in the end will ultimately be because of Christ and because it is his righteousness that we possess and not our own. Worthy is he to have our crowns cast at his feet, and it be said to him, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. If you are on the younger side, and you live in a Christian household, but have not yourself committed your life to Christ, you need to pay closer attention to the instruction and teaching of your parents because they're trying to point you to the only one in which there is forgiveness of sins. They're trying to point you to the only one who could present you blameless and beyond reproach before God. They're trying to point you to the only one who can save your soul. All of us here tonight, whether we're Christians or not, need to heed godly parental wisdom because godly parental wisdom always points us to Christ. All of us have access to this godly parental wisdom, whether our parents are Christian or not, whether they're Reformed or not, whether they live close by or not, even if they're still alive or not, because all of us have access to God's Word. As we continue with our passage in Proverbs, we move to the next point, the enticement. In verses 10 through 14, it reads, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason, like she all let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have 
one person. The sinners mentioned in this passage is referring to unbelievers. Now, we're all sinners because we all sin, but the unbeliever's life is marked by sin. It is a life of continual, habitual, and unrepentant sin. The type of person described in this passage is not satisfied with just living in their sin, but they entice, they persuade, they lure, they seduce others to join them. Now, we will be, in, we will be enticed by others to sin, but we must not consent. We must not give in. We must not agree to join in this transgression against God. Bad company corrupts good morals, and many times bad company just exposes what is already in our hearts. James 1, 14 through 15 teaches that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire leads to sin, which will ultimately bring forth death. In this passage, the sinners cause very upfront they speak about murder and theft very openly. They say, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Now, I think that if most of us were to hear this type of enticement, if we were to be approached in this manner, with talks about uh, laying lying in wait for blood and swallowing the innocent up like the realm of death, we would probably stay away out of mistrust or fear. But the point here is to stress the wickedness of men and how underneath the temptation and the enticement, there is unhindered, unhinged, and unrestrained sin. Psalm 10, 7-8 says about the wicked, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. As we see in 13 and 14 of our passage, the enticers also promise to find precious goods and fill their houses with these goods taken by this honest acquisition. They persuade their victims to throw in their lot among them, to join them, to be associated with them, as they say that the wealth be, will be shared. Many times when we are influenced by unbelievers, or by our own sinful desires, we are attracted by the idea that things will work out fine or that perhaps even something there is to gain from living a life of sin. In our modern day, we will continue to be enticed by sin and the enticement will not come to us in a form that will make us mistrust or fear because the enticement will come in a form of things that seem appealing and desirable to us. But underneath the attractive looks of sin is Sheol waiting to swallow us alive. Underneath 
the attractive looks of sin is death. And unlike the sinners mentioned in this passage, Jesus calls us to himself, but he calls us for purity, for safety, and for salvation. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29 reads, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He does not lie in wait for bloodshed. He shed his blood for sinners, and not just any sinners, the worst sinners, sinners such as us. The next point, the warning. In verse 15 it reads, My son, do not walk on the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. After teaching his son about the enticement of sinners, about the potential pressure he will receive from them, the writer again addresses his son and he commands him to not walk in the way with them. He commands him to even hold back his foot from their paths, to not even walk among them. Because the father knows that the wicked, those who do not fear God, he knows in the way they walk. He knows that their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. He knows they are on a hellbound race. So he tells his son to not even walk in their way, to not even associate. As the Apostle Paul compiled several Old Testament passages to stress human wickedness, he writes in Romans, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. We must not walk in the way with unbelievers. We must hold back our feet from their paths. We must not be conformed to the world. The point and purpose of our interactions with unbelievers should be to talk to them about the good news of Jesus Christ. And verses, and verses 17 through 18 reads, For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. What the saying in verse 17 about a net being spread in vain in the sight of any birds, any bird means is that even a bird, when it sees a net spread before it to trap it, will avoid or flee from it because it already has knowledge of it. To spread a net in front of a bird would be in vain 
because it won't fall for the trap if it's seeing it being laid out. But as verse 18 says, the, but these men, the wicked men, lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Which means that those who seek to trap and ambush the innocent without reason don't see that they're actually falling in their own trap. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. The ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain is as the men who lie in wait to ambush others, not knowing that they are actually setting a trap for themselves. In other words, they ruin their own lives. They ruin themselves going after unjustly earned gain, wealth, and goods. It is not a sin to be wealthy, but there are sinful ways to accumulate wealth. Money is not evil, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. 1 Timothy 6, 9-11 reads, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. The desire for anything that is not Christ, that is not the wisdom of God, can become a snare. And it can cause us to be caught up in the sin of idolatry. Even good, God-given blessings can become idols, such as marriage, kids, material goods, and wealth. Anything that we may think can satisfy or fulfill us other than Christ, even for a second, has the potential to become our God and lead us to ruin, destruction, and ultimately eternal death. As I conclude, we have read a passage from the God-inspired book of Proverbs that gives us godly wisdom for us to avoid the path of the folly, the path of the wicked, the path of those who are perishing. From this passage, we have received a call to attentiveness. We have been alerted about the enticement of sinners. And we have received a warning to not walk in the way of the wicked. I said in my introduction that Jesus is the wise son of Solomon. Just as he is the only one who could keep the law, he is the only one who walked in perfect wisdom 
during his life on earth. He is the only one in whom God is well pleased. Such a thing has never been said, nor will ever be said of any other. Before he was born, it was prophesied of him that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. And then we read in Luke chapter 2 that at 12 years old, all who heard him in the temple were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And we also read that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. As an adult, as he taught in the synagogue in Nazareth, we read in Mark 2, Mark 6, 2, that those who heard his teaching asked, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And now, even after his crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he continues to be the wisdom of God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The gospel message, who Christ is and what he did, is ultimate wisdom. If you believe the gospel, if you possess Christ, rather if Christ possesses you, you possess the wisdom of God. Life is not just about avoiding the wrong path, avoiding the path of the wicked. It's about intentionally walking on the right one. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I think that many times we can overlook the words the way. In Spanish, the words the way is translated as el camino, which gives a good visual of Jesus being the path, the road, the route. We must remember that the purpose to obtain knowledge in wisdom and understanding is so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, as it says in Colossians 9 through 10. Your, your head knowledge of systematic theology, of church history, of hermeneutics, and all these other subjects is useless if you have not repented and believed in the gospel. As I finish, just three quick points of application. The first one, read the word, for it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Number two, meditate on the word, so we may store it up in our hearts that we may not sin against him. 
And number three, apply the word so we may be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for Christ. We thank you for your wisdom of the gospel. Help us, Lord, to walk in a manner in a manner worthy of our calling. Help us to walk in holiness. Help us to be intentional as we walk in the path of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you help us to reflect the mind and the wisdom of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.